Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach at the Naval Institute. With me is my usual co-host, retired Navy Captain, Intel Officer Extraordinaire, Bill Hamlet, now the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Bill, it's a beautiful day for sure in Annapolis. It's been a while since we've been able to say that. Finally, it's a gorgeous day. Yeah, I think yeah, spring has well, arrived, actually. I was walking across the yard, uh, coming back from the Naval Academy Foreign Affairs Conference, which I was very happy to be part of the last couple of days, and it's uh, it's finishing up this afternoon. Uh, and I, I walked by an older, looked like a, a Naval Academy graduate, retired Navy guy, and, and he said... Uh, we're finally getting the weather that we've been waiting for, and I said, "Yes, sir, you hit it on the on the head. It, it, it's warming up into like seventy degrees. It's yeah. sunny. the The cherry trees are blooming. It's it's quite nice here. So, um, yeah, it's it's been great being part of the Naval Academy's uh, Foreign Affairs Conference this year. Uh, they asked me to be an advisor on the the Russia Roundtable. The topic this year essentially has been how uh, democracy is kind of under siege around the world and what you know, what can be done about it. They've had some uh, really great speakers and, and interesting chance to talk with midshipmen uh, and, and uh, ROTC, Coast Guard Academy cadets, and some students from um, from civilian universities. How, how many people participate in that? I, it, I would say it's probably 350, 400 students. Wow. Stu- yeah. It's a big crowd. It's, it's a big event. And it's this is like the 50-something year that they've been, that they've run the, the Naval Academy Foreign Affairs Conference. So, uh, yeah, uh, Admiral Carter kicked it off uh, on Tuesday morning. Uh, they had a um, Professor Snyder, uh, Timothy Snyder from Yale University, who's written a book called On Tyranny. He was the keynote uh, opening address speaker. He was terrific. Um, you know, sort of hit the highlights of the top 20 points from his book, which I understand we are now going to review uh, in, in proceedings in the future. We'll run a book review of that uh, book. And uh, from what I understand, it's a, it's, it's a short, quick read, um, you know, sort of 20 chapters and uh, each one of them is only like five five to ten pages so it's kind of a quick read um, about what's happening uh, the, the the forces that uh, uh, are arrayed against democracy and against uh, you know liberty around the world and you know what can be done about it so uh, that was a just a great um, address to hear so uh, other than that um, well, so a couple other things yeah, yeah. Uh, we we this was also CR space this week Mm. Um, our good friends from the Navy League run their their uh, conference, Sea Air Space, and at the National Harbor in Washington D.C. Or actually, uh, National Harbor just outside of Washington D.C. Always a great time, uh, great to catch up with uh, old colleagues and associates and industry reps and hear some stuff. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, the U.S. Nine News team was there covering uh, a variety of things, and and a, a couple of items came up uh, this week that are of, of great interest. Um, one of them is um, that uh, Admiral Davidson and, and we've I think we've discussed this uh, Admiral Slate thing uh, in previous shows, but Admiral Davidson is going from Fleet Forces Command to Pacific Command, so where he will relieve Admiral Harris. Uh, so that's happening. There was some wrangling, inter-service wrangling about whether uh, Navy should relieve Navy, and there was some idea that we wanted an Air Force guy out there um and so it turns out that admiral davidson is uh is going to go out there for that a uh, couple other news items uh and we recommend the audience uh, look at us on news on a daily basis and get the newsletter of course um the cost per fighter of the f-35 has gone down the unit cost below 100 million 
So it's sort of basic economics. If you buy more, the price is going to go down. But at the same time, the Navy stopped uh, accepting delivery, or not the Navy, DOD stopped accepting delivery of the F-35 because there is a technical issue with the airplanes. Um, so uh, that, that's, uh, it's been, uh, I've seen some news outlets, uh, military news outlets, present that as a huge deal, having worked in uh, Nav Air on the V-22 program. Uh, I will tell you that's not a huge deal. Uh, it's another day in the life of the CISCOM. So I don't think this is going to be a huge showstopper. They'll do whatever the requirement is to fix it and then you know press on this is is why you have systems command is it a line of code or is it a no it's a it's a it's a corrosion issue that they Ah, have found got it um and the last news item before we get to our guest uh which is uh sort of an interesting deal considering uh our, our conversation with admiral moore a couple of weeks ago um in um at west out in san diego is uh, Megan Eckstein uh, wrote this story a couple of days ago. Uh, actually, it was yesterday. Uh, the headline is, Navy may not deploy any literal combat ships this year. Um, and uh, she goes into the details as to why. Uh, so invite the audience to uh, check out that story on USI News. Last item, I, I, this is my saved round. Don't forget the Naval Institute's annual meeting on May 2nd at... CSIS, Rhode Island Avenue in Washington, D.C. CNO is a keynote speaker. Everybody will be there. Always a great event, both for networking, catching up with old friends, and for getting in touch with what's going on uh, around the sea services. Uh, so uh, more detail on that in this month's proceedings yeah, and on usni.org. But uh, definitely put that on your calendar. And, and if you're looking for sort of a gouge event, right, um, it, it's a little-known secret that uh, the the annual event is free to members. Uh, membership of the Naval Institute is like $65. So for $65, you get to go to this event at CSIS for free, uh, listen to the, the CNO speak, listen to the uh, authors of the year presentation for the press and for Proceedings Magazine. Uh, and for Naval History Magazine, and and hear uh, the the winning uh, prize winners of the General Prize Essay Contest for 2017, uh, and those three uh, essays will be published in the May issue of Proceedings, and uh, it's open bar and uh, open hors d'oeuvres, so it's a really great event. It's total backstage scene, right? <laughs> it's, it's, you, you can act, not only do you listen to CNO, yeah, you could talk to him. You can when talk it's all to the over. CNO and yeah. have a glass of wine or three, yeah, uh, for on the Naval Institute for your sixty-five dollar um, you know, annual membership. It's a great, great deal. deal. It's a great yeah. deal. It's gouge. It's total um, gouge. Yeah. Uh, so to introduce our guest this week, uh, we have uh, Lieutenant Joseph Hanacek, who has written in the April issue of Proceedings uh, a feature article called Presence is Not Deterrence. Uh, and Lieutenant Hanacek has one of the best jobs in the Navy right now. He is a student uh, at the Naval Postgraduate School out in Monterey, um, studying to get a master's degree in systems engineering analysis. Uh, so, Lieutenant Hanacek, um, Joe, Joseph, uh, thanks for joining us today, and uh, just tell us a little bit about what's going on out in Monterey. Hey, uh, yeah, uh, thanks a lot for having me here. Uh, it's really an honor uh, to be talking talking with you guys, to be talking on, on this uh, forum here. Um, definitely a nice day out here in Monterey as well, matching Annapolis, that's for sure. 
um, in between classes right now. So this was a great time for uh, for you guys to invite me on. So the the let me read what I believe to be the the key paragraph in in your piece as a as a way to tee up the topic. So you you use a word that I've actually never never heard of called suasion, uh, and you you parse it out. And we'll let you discuss what what you mean by uh, the various uh, forms of suasion. But the key paragraph is. Active suasion, on the other hand, would be an outright declaration on the part of the United States, a so-called line in the sand, that certain actions by others will be met with a direct response. For example, and this is timely, uh, to dissuade Syria from conducting chemical warfare, the United States could threaten to conduct airstrikes against Syrian military facilities. To make this threat a viable deterrent, it must be deemed by the Syrians to be credible and also significant enough to influence their decision-making. So I, I imagine you wrote this some months before uh, the current events. Uh, So that was a timely uh, uh, example here. But talk to us about the uh, the suasion uh, discussion and also the the various forms of it. Yeah, um, absolutely. So the the suasion theory uh, that I kind of um, built built my piece off is is based off of um, some work done by Edward Lubeck, uh, among others, but he, I think, foremost, um, in terms of trying to break down uh, ideas of, of deterrence, not just in the Cold War nuclear deterrent mindset, but in a more traditional conventional war mindset. Um, and he's done a number of pieces, uh, you know, ranging everything from journal entries to to full-fledged books um, on strategy, grand strategy. So so who is Edward Lutwak? Can you tell the audience a little bit about him? Is he still alive? Is his current thought or or what? Um, I, I believe he's still alive. Um, I, uh, but he he's the author of a number of uh, n- number of books on, on strategy and grand strategy. He's worked, um, I think, in, in for Rand uh, before in the past um, and a uh, n- number of other number of other uh, consulting national security type uh, positions as well as um, I believe he's been a professor at, uh, at a few different universities but I mean fundamentally he kind of takes an academic look at at military issues and national security issues um, and tries to break things down um, between the various levels of war you know very much clarifying the ideas of what is tactical operational strategic and then he takes it over uh, to higher levels, you know, including grand strategy, which encompasses strategic and and po- policy above that. Um, but so, I, yeah, I've, I've kind of been a fan of his for for some time now. Um, he's uh, his work on on the grand strategy of the Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire is, is definitely pretty insightful. Um, and uh, and looking. I guess I, I could say my inspiration for this paper was looking through an old article that he wrote about uh, the presence of a carrier strike group during the 1970s um, off, uh, in their operations in the uh, eastern Mediterranean and just the confluence of events that kind of came about to uh, uh, factors that needed to be considered, so to speak, by decision makers of all of all types and of all nations that were going on during the various uh, critical moments of the 1970s. So I spent my entire Navy career on deployment thinking that presence was deterrence. Where was I wrong? Um, I think that 
there are moments where presence can be deterrence, but the the important thing to take into consideration um, when deterrence is on the table is taking into account the full realm of implications that decision makers have to make. Um, and and there are going to be instances, uh, and there quite frequently are instances, where uh, the amount of presence that we project abroad normalizes our uh, normalizes the um, effect that that presence might have uh, at this point in time we've had carriers operating in in fifth fleet areas for for so much um, um, the, the 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 idea that sending another asset to that area or or you know, bringing them closer to shore, anything like that, any small level, any any micro play on the part of the Navy, it probably isn't going to be taken that seriously in terms of uh, a projection of our mindset um, and our intentions as a nation. So I'm curious, um, you know, you, you bring out the points and I'll, I'll let you talk a little bit about um, arms, latent suasion and active suasion. But I, I think what you're kind of getting at is the idea that um, forward presence, at some point, the audience, the intended audience, gets used to it, right? That we have, you know, a 1-0 or a 2-0 or some level of, uh, you know, carrier strike group presence in the in the Fifth Fleet area of responsibility uh, or uh, or in the Seventh Fleet area of responsibility. And we're constantly, you know, we have to have a certain number of ships in the South China Sea or... Um, but it, at some point, that our, the audience get it, gets a nerd to it and, and kind of acclimates to it so that it's no longer sending them a, a message or the message that we might intend it to, to, to mean, right? And your, your article gets to that, and it also gets to the fact that we're, we, the U.S. Navy, is paying a big price for that presence. And that presence, that, that price that we pay for that might not be worth the message that uh, that that is you know being received by the intended audience. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. Um, at this point in time, one of one of the big buzzwords that you hear uh, tossed about in you know academic and political circles and business world as well, you know, sustainability. How sustainable is is the system that we have in place? And um, and right now, I think that in terms of what we're buying, the amount of uh, the amount of effect that we're buying with our current deployment uh, system, you know, a, a, as you put it, you know, the one point or two point whatever carriers that we have in the Gulf at any given time or in any in any region, uh, the cost of putting things where they are, I think, in compared to what we gain out of it from a national perspective, uh, it's just not worth it, and it's and it's not a sustainable policy. Um, in in contrast, so, so so that would be an example of latent suasion, uh, just keeping our forces out there uh, as a reminder to everybody else that we're capable of doing something. What we're going to do, that's, you know, it, it, it's up for deliberation um, and it's up for interpretation from various parties. But when it comes to uh, active suasion, sort of a recommended approach, um, the, the, the idea is really um, keep your keep your forces positioned in a more sustainable, more affordable position, a place where you can keep the, keep the sword sharpened, so to speak, and then uh, let people know when you're going to use it and 
fundamentally follow through with your word. Because I think um, when it comes to international affairs, uh, reputation means a lot. Um, and and it's important that if, it, uh, if the line in the sand is drawn, then, uh, then it needs to be drawn carefully and it needs to be able to be acted upon uh, if, if it's violated. So you use Taiwan as an example of this. Can you talk about what, what that would look like in execution? So, um, so the, the Taiwan example uh, and, you know, the one China policy in, in various aspects of, of the U.S. relationship with Taiwan and, and with uh, the People's Republic of China and is always going to complicate issues. But um, one of the big arguments that is made for the level of presence that we keep in the Seventh Fleet area is you know showing partnership partner nations that we're willing to stand up for them when times are going to get tough a perfect example of that is is taiwan and um one of the common missions that you see regularly employed is uh freedom of navigation patrols uh well not super commonly employed but but it's definitely a training point The, the idea that we need to maintain presence in certain areas whether it's the spratleys or or taiwan and and let uh let the world recognize that we don't accept any one nation's claim um towards you know those areas um i think it's important that a, that some degree of presence is maintained but but more importantly uh i think it, it's good for us to remember that it's really only a two-week sail from uh from the west coast of the united states to that area and while two weeks is a long time in terms of kinetic operations uh, it's not that long of a time in terms of a a bigger conflict, something that might escalate beyond just um, the uh, the buzzing of aircraft over ships and maybe the the occasional kinetic event that leads towards uh, fatalities. Um, and I, I think it's good um, for the country as a whole to be a little bit on the side of restraint. Uh, knowing that with that restraint comes an increased level of preparedness. Yeah, that point that you just made reminds me of uh, the article. Uh, actually, it's now a series of articles that Admiral Swift has written for proceedings. One was in February, one is in March, and then the third is coming out in the May issue. Uh, and so a little bit of a spoiler alert, but um, one of the his topics is about uh, fleet command, right? And, and if you're going to fight... An, uh, an adversary, a peer level adversary, the uh, the Navy's you know essentially tactical unit is not going to be a carrier strike group. It's going to be a fleet. Um, but the opportunity to command a fleet in a complex exercise is uh, at this point it, it's very difficult because we rarely have more than one carrier strike group. Uh, in a place at a time, kind of ready for operations, right? there, we, we get a carrier strike group ready, and then it deploys, to generally to 5th Fleet, uh, with some time in 6th Fleet and 7th Fleet, and then it comes back and another one goes out. Uh, so this idea of, you know, of keeping more of your forces closer to home, and as you, you use the term, uh, keeping, keeping them sharper, right? Keep the edge sharper uh, all the time. Um, and and having a little bit less of them forward deployed all the time, um, you know that gives you the opportunity could provide the opportunity that that Admiral Swift is talking about about 
practicing fleet level command, practicing two, three, four strike groups in a, in a big exercise as the Navy did in the fleet problems in the interwar period. And Admiral Swift has you know, written about bringing back the fleet problems uh, in the Pacific, but when he was on the podcast about a month ago. and Well, and we had Pete Pagano. Remember, we were talking about that very topic. We were. And then, is, it, is Navy training realistic? Yep. Is it really, you know, what we're talking about in terms of the high threat? Right, uh, right, right. Know, and and Admiral Swift, when he was, we had him on about fleet problems, and he said, we asked if he ha- if if they had done any multiple carrier strike group plot problems, and he said, no. So far, it's been single carrier strike groups or e- expeditionary strike groups. But you know that it, it gets to that point, right? If you if you're constantly pushing forward carrier strike groups for deployment, your ability to train with more than one of them at a time is is undercut. Well, so also. Um, Remember, we thought of a carrier strike group as the atom, you know, on up until Desert Storm. In fact, there's this urban legend. I don't know if it's true, but, you know, we had seven carriers on station at, at the opening, um, or maybe six, six. And, and then Midway yep. showed up later. But, but one of the carrier strike groups did not know there was this thing called the ATO. And they planned their own conops, <laughs> and so they had this simo run on Basra, um, and and they're like, "What are you doing? This is my target," and that sort of thing. Like, who are you? And it's like, "Can we introduce you to Riyadh? That's who actually does the tasking here, you know." And and this is where the Navy realized it was woefully behind in terms of, you know, having the means, and that's where S threes were flying the ATO hard copy out to carriers every day because we didn't have the Gucci. TAMP systems or anything else that we have now. Um, so since that time, we've lagged, to your point, Bill, we've lagged conceiving of how we would actually fight, you know, because we are like still the carrier is the center of this thing and everybody will, you know, sort of respond to that. And, and we haven't fought that way since Desert Storm 1, you know, not right. even conops wise. And, and, and we... Even when we have, you know, even in in um, Iraqi Freedom 20, 2013, right, or 2003, sorry, um, you know, there were multiple carrier strike groups uh, in the CENTCOM AOR. Yeah, but the tasking came from the, somewhere else. Right, the tasking right? came from somewhere else, and it wasn't a, it wasn't a war at sea. It wasn't a fight for... The, it wasn't a contest for C. Yes. Yep. It was a it was a power projection mission. It was you know multiply the the power projection capability of one carrier with multiple carriers, combine it with air force, and and you're you're doing a power projection mission. But, but back, back to Joseph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, so, um, so in, in the case I, I, of I, I, of Taiwan again, because you, you have some calculus in the article about the time frames. Uh, you know, tell tell us about that. Well, um, re- realistically, I think that the, uh, the the time frame aspect of it um, is it, it, it's going to be variable depending on on circumstances. You know, the calculus that applies today isn't going to be the same calculus that applies in five or ten years. But but um, but the general idea being that a partner nation, along with a certain amount of uh, U.S. forces, will be able to withstand a uh, up to a certain level of assault for up to a certain amount of time. Um, it's going to hurt. Uh, it's not going to be a cakewalk, but, you know, war shouldn't be viewed as a, as a cakewalk. And, um, and in that time, the, that 
should be a sufficient amount of time for U.S. forces to make it over. So in Taiwan, uh, Taiwan's case, they've self-assessed their capabilities, I think, currently somewhere in the area of 45 days of self-sufficiency. Um, a huge contrast from their 1990s level of capability where they assumed uh, permanent air superiority over the over, over their airspace um, you know, indefinitely. So, so a lot's changed in, in a relatively short period of time, and we can anticipate further changes in those directions. But, but the critical aspect uh, is that you have enough U.S. forces in the area to show our partners that we have skin in the game to encourage them that resistance is worthwhile in the event that there's a serious threat against their, uh, their way of being. And in the mean, and then the question goes towards, as you addressed, you know, the, the fleet level battle. Um, and, and all of the questions at that point move towards the, the whole anti-access, uh, area, area denial, uh, capabilities of, of whoever the adversary is going to be. You know, if in, in the instance of China, you've, you've got DF-21 threat, you've got their, uh, projected, um, ability to, potentially deny access to the first or maybe even the second or third island chain. Um, but again, those are fleet problems that need to be dealt with and trained to um, at a fleet level. Uh, to me, how would that look? Well, maybe maybe one day one of the RIMPACs needs to be a look from moving a, uh, a fleet-sized force based in Hawaii as if it were attacking the west coast of the United States. You know, if we you know, a force versus force battle, how, how would you construct that, um, you know, laying out realistic uh, capabilities for, for both sides? Um, and to that, to that end, you need a force that's maintained to a level that's e- even able to put enough units out into that training exercise. And right now, I, I just don't see it. You, you mentioned the LCS uh, article about LCS being held back right now and potentially not deploying this year because of maintenance issues. I don't truthfully view that as a bad thing. I think that rushing LCS into the theater um, currently doesn't provide a significant uh, asset to 7th Fleet um, or or 5th Fleet if if they were to head there uh, to the level that maybe the war planners over there are hoping that it would provide. Yeah, and Joseph, you 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 were... You served as the uh, electronics material officer, communications officer on the USS Jackson, LCS-6. So tell us a little bit about your experience on the LCS, because we've also talked about that uh, ship program on the podcast. Uh, and But you're the first uh, podcast guest we've had who's served on an LCS. Well, and just to provide more context before you get into your experiences, we had a critical look with Kevin Iyer, and then we had a, um, a more positive uh, look from Admiral Moore in AFC. Um, so, um, what? Tell us a little bit about what your experiences were. Um, so, I, I think, like anything else, the Navy, uh, it, it's a mixed bag. The program's definitely not where it needs to be right now. I, I don't think anyone can deny that. But it's also got potential, um, whether we like it or not. You know, we we fight the wars with the tools we have, not the not not the tools we want. At least not at least at the initial stages of any of any conflict. Uh, LCS is the product of some questionable, uh, you know, from my curriculum's point of view, uh, systems engineering decisions. And um, and that being said, it's also a platform that offers significant promise in certain areas if if it's developed right and if the correct uh, tactics and procedures are are implemented. 
um, and trains do. What, what did you but like I, about I, what about what did you like about the USS Jackson? What what you know serving on that ship? What particular things about the ship did you take you know pride in? Um, more more than anything else, um, in terms of the vessel itself, I think the most impressive thing is the the cargo capacity and the size of that flight deck. Um, viewing viewing the LCS as a pure, as a small DDG would be a huge mistake for a many warfighters' perspective, but viewing it as a small amphib, in my perspective, um, that's that's really where it fits into the world. Um, it, it can be the future of, of small UUV, uh, UAV, um, and USV, uh, you know, uh, deployment around around the world for various tasks. Um, I think the idea of merging the LCS community with the amphib community um, really would fit quite well um, in terms of the type of tasking that it would be able to provide. That's interesting. I've never heard it put that way. Yeah, that's, nor have uh, I. That is, so which there, there's, coast, a, there's a proceedings article for you to yeah, write. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that's another one I've been I've been tossing around in my head yeah. um, for, for a while now. But awesome. Stop tossing and start writing. Um, so, um, where, where was the Jackson station? Were you East or West coast? So I, I got to the ship when it, uh, just prior to, uh, commissioning, it was still down in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, we took it over around to Florida, did several runs of, uh, of different types of maintenance and continued work on the ship. Really the, the, the state of shipbuilding in the Navy right now is more to the point of you, you buy the ship about 80% complete. And the crew and uh, and visiting contractors are are, are really re- responsible for that next twenty percent. So so you um, didn't do a full up deployment uh, in, so I, in a fleet I, sense. No, that's that's correct. Yeah. So we I, I was on the ship for uh, one rotation, um, and that saw us up to Norfolk and back down to Jacksonville, where we did a, a lot of maintenance and preparations for shock trials. USS Jackson um, went through shock, and. Uh, was brought through the canal, and then that's where I rejoined her um, back in San Diego, where we did, again, some level of training um, and a lot of uh, combat systems upgrades, maintenance overhauls, uh, really just trying to form-fit the ship to where it, it needs to be in terms of the uh, the, the ideas of um, the current LCS con- construct. Well, you mentioned shipbuilding, uh, which brings to mind some of the topics that came up at Sea Air Space this week uh, around the 300 and 55 ship Navy and 2050 and, and that sort of thing. So when you mention uh, this idea of sort of being in battery and not necessarily forward deployed all the time, that seems to change the the presence multiple by theater uh, considerably, right? And And so... Might that mean we need fewer assets, or what? What does that do to the overall strategic plan with respect to the Navy, in your mind, in theory? Uh, well, um, I was on a cruiser for my first ship, so I, I, I ascribe to a certain degree to the uh, the, the the crew guys bias, um, where you know my 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 view of of fleet size comes with the idea of one ship is on deployment for every one ship on deployment. You've got another two going through maintenance and two going through workups. Um, you know, just that, that, that constant cycle of ships. So, so I, I don't think that it, that it necessarily argues the need for a, 
a smaller fleet size. I, I think that we can make do with what we have if needed, but I also think that, uh, that, well, I, I suppose, let, let me put it this way. I'd rather have a smaller size force that's uh, well-trained, well-equipped, um, well-maintained than a large force that requires that one ship deployed for four ships at home type of uh, force model. Well, I think you also, I, I, we all always love when uh, Wayne Hughes is, uh, is quoted in proceedings. That's, that's sort of a, a you know, it, quote Clausewitz, uh, quote Wayne Hughes, um, you know, re- refer to uh, John Paul Jones. Claude and, Boyd. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, you, you point out one of Wayne Hughes's um, quotes from Fleet Tactics and Coastal Combat, which is the inherent advantage of naval warfare lies in the offense. And so this idea of having more of your fleet back in battery or back in readiness and training, sort of sharpening its edge, um, complies with that that uh, point by, by Wayne Hughes, correct? Yeah, and and in addition to the idea that keeping the fleet at home, um, and I'll, I'll address in, in a moment here one of the main criticisms that you know I, I can identify in, in that in, in that in that paper myself, and that it's been pointed out to me a couple of times. Um, but but it makes the targeting solution much more difficult if the bulk of our fleet isn't already located, or a significant chunk of our fleet isn't already located within the within firing range of the enemy asset um, or potential hostile asset, I, I suppose I should say. Um, because, you know, as much as we talk about how difficult it, it would be to get um, certain fleet systems through, uh, you know, an anti-access area, um, I think that's when you give the fleet planners the creativity, uh, the, the, the room to show their creativity and, and find those solutions. But, any war game that would go on in the Seventh Fleet area uh, today, I think that if you're being honest with yourself, you need to assume that you're going to lose seventy to eighty percent of the assets that are in that area on day one. You know, zero hour, because nobody would go into a fight with us unless they knew that they could already do that. Yeah, what is um, it? They're they're already sitting in Taxit Bravo, right? Exactly. Everybody everybody knows where they are and what they're capable of. Um, you know, if their intelligence is, is worth half of what they're paying them, then uh, it should be a pretty easy uh, first day. But I, I think it's important to note that, you know, our the strategy to winning a war shouldn't necessarily be to, uh, to win the first day. Maybe it should be to survive the first day and, and be ready for the second. Um, Have you ever participated in a war game where that's how it went? Uh, I haven't actually had the opportunity. Well, uh, probably not true. I've, Bill, I've probably had you? opportunities to participate, but I haven't. I haven't actually participated in in any war games. But uh, well, I guess I'm asking Bill too, because uh, that that just would be. I, I've never seen the ones that I did at Harry Train or anything with that result. It would be pretty cataclysmic. Um, so when you, I, I think you're right, Joseph. When you say if you're going to be realistic with yourself. I wonder how willing to be realistic with ourselves we have been traditionally. But, Bill, what, what is your experience with respect to that? Um, I can't talk a lot about it in detail, but I can say, yes, I participated in a war game in Newport um, more than five years ago uh, where the gloves were taken off and, and I was the red team commander. Uh, and it was very realistic. Okay. And it was very eye-opening for all the participants. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I, I, Joseph, I like your your Horatio Nelson quote about a ship's a fool to fight a fort. Um, I, I don't think we we think of that enough, right? Because we do. Again, the adage that I operated on was this sort of urban legend about, you know, the Lebanese look out and they see the USS John F. Kennedy and they don't do anything. They're just scared to death. I'm not sure that that's true, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, it kept us upbeat, I guess, when we were on cruise and some idea that that's actually, that was actually the case. Well, it, it certainly hasn't been true for serious President Assad. I don't Assad. think it's, it's never been true. It didn't stop Desert Storm. It didn't stop the Soviets from or the Russians from invading Ukraine. Um, even though we're in the Black Sea, I, I don't know if it's ever been true, right? And I think that's where Joe's thesis here is pretty brilliant. Um, so, um, yeah, so you, you were saying, Joe, you had something else that you wanted to bring up uh, with respect to uh, uh, the, the one of your points here. Uh, uh, well, I, I suppose the um, one of the big pitfalls of the argument against bringing, bringing crews home, bringing, bringing our force home, um, to train is that a lot of the best deployment, a lot of the best training that you get through your career is going to happen on deployment. Uh, you know, you know, you, th- you think back to some of the best lessons learned that it, that it, you all have had. Um, a lot of the times that happens at the high stress, high tempo environment that comes with being on deployment. Um, and I'm de- definitely aware of that and, and can appreciate that. Um, I think though, to counter that point, uh, to just go go ahead and counter that, I think that we're getting to the point where simulation um, and fleet simulators specifically, uh, along with other training techniques and the added advantage of having more maintenance and more training closer to home, uh, I, I think that, that we can outweigh or mitigate a lot of the loss that we'll experience by not having as much deployment-type uh, operational experience. Yeah, yeah it's, it, that's a very good point that some of the best training does happen when you're on deployment. Um, you know, you get to do, you get to go and, and use some unique ranges. You get to train with other navies. Uh, you might have a real world operation that requires you to, uh, you know, to, to stress your, your force and to flex and fly more operations and, and, you know, deploy somewhere, somewhere quickly. And, you know, so that it's, it's always a great, you know, a great way to learn is by being on deployment at the same time, some of the skills that we hone in our pre-deployment training uh, and in big exercises like com two X and JTFX. Uh, will atrophy over time over, over, over a deployment because in you know in a JTFX or a Com2X the uh, the the force is required to hunt uh, diesel submarines uh, that are trying to attack them and kill them right and you you're probably not going to get that on most deployments um, and so there are there are skills that that definitely atrophy over time on a six month period you come back from deployment and you and you need some some refresh. Uh, before you're ready to go again. Well, and there's a not too fine line to your point, Bill, that when a a con op turns into a presence op, like I'm thinking of Operation Southern Watch and some of what we did in Bosnia, where one day you're dropping ordnance and flying tarps missions and recce and doing all, and the next day you're just literally burning holes in the sky um, because peace is broken out, right? And, and so suddenly, to your point, your skills do atrophy. You know, uh, Operation Southern Watch was by and large double and triple cycle hops where you didn't do anything. You know, you tanked. That was the big deal was tanking. Um, But, you know, there was no bomb dropping. There was no air to air. There was nothing really. Um, And and so uh, 
you know that's a that's a that's a good point uh, and and I, I don't know how you how you would navigate that or how you could manage that yeah i think um you know you, you hear a lot of writers especially uh looking back talking about the boredom of war you know looking at civil war napoleonic era um really you know war, warfare is is to a large degree a, a lot of intense moments separated by long uh, drawn out periods of, of, uh, hurry up and wait and, and, um, almost, uh, almost occurrences of, of kinetic action. But for the most part, things are drawn out. And I think that part of the challenge of the leadership in the Navy is going to be to figure out, and, and really always has been to figure out how to drill the sailors, you know, how to, how to get ourselves and keep ourselves as sharp as we can be and ready for action. And I think that, higher quality training could be delivered um, in the SoCal operating area uh, than is currently um, available right now if we really invest in things like uh, quality simulation, quality wargaming, um, better participation funding um, for operations like JTFX and, and things of that nature. Great. Hey, uh, Joseph, thank you very much for uh, being on the podcast today and talking about your article. Again, this is uh, Presence is Not Deterrence. It starts on page 54 of the April issue of Proceedings by Lieutenant Joseph Hanacek, a surface warfare officer who has served on two surface combatants and is now a student at the uh, uh, Naval Postgraduate School at Monterey, California. Joseph, thanks for writing for Proceedings and for, uh, for being with us today. Um, and for your next article titled LCS is not a small DDG, but it's a amphib. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. Um, and I want to highlight a couple of upcoming things. Uh, uh, Ward, you already mentioned the uh, 2 May annual meeting of the Naval Institute at uh, CSIS, on Rhode, Rhode Island Avenue in northwest Washington, D.C., uh, that's late afternoon. I think starts at five or something on yep. uh, on two May. Yep. Uh, we also uh, have coming in the May issue of Proceedings. We've got we're very excited about a piece of short fiction by August Cole, who is the co-author of the uh, blockbuster Navy uh, novel um, that came out in 2015 called Ghost Fleet. Uh, so August was a uh, panelist and a speaker for us out at West in uh, in February out in San Diego. And he's written this uh, very cool piece about urban combat in uh, North Africa that takes place in 2038. Um, and uh, you can use that to, you know, to think, stimulate your thinking about AI and bots and command and control and the type of adversaries we might be um, facing uh, 20 years from now. Uh, and we commissioned some great art uh, by an artist named uh, Alex Brady who lives in the, uh, in the UK. Uh, and she has done art for some very high-tech uh, online games, um, and, and she's just hit it out of the park in, uh, in illustrating August's piece. So uh, uh, that's called Automated Valor, coming in the May issue of Proceedings and very online. Very exciting. Yeah, we'll and, um, uh, and we've got uh, the winners of the uh, 2017 General Prize Essay Contest will also be published, all three of them, in the, in the May issue of Proceedings. So uh, the May issue, like, uh, like every issue, um, is a great way to punctuate the point that victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. Thank you for joining us, and uh, Joe, thanks, and uh, enjoy your day uh, out in Monterey. Hey, thanks so much for having me. You, you all take care in Annapolis. Thank you. Yeah, we'll see everybody next week.